Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 197 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Slow and Steady, an interview with Dr. Janice Iannucci. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatella. Now, we named this episode Slow and Steady because this is consistent with Janice's career path and her journey with Lyme disease. She began as a licensed practical nurse right after she graduated from high school and went to work at a hospital. She then became a registered nurse. She then got her master's degree and became a nurse practitioner. And ultimately, she became a doctor and earned her PhD. And all during that path of her career, she was gaining more and more education and more and more experience. But however, she was failed by her education. Not only was she failed by her education because she couldn't diagnose herself, but she was failed by her colleagues' education because none of her colleagues could diagnose her. And then when she became a patient for many different doctors, she was failed by their Western education. Rich, one of the most powerful parts about this interview is the fact that Janice combined Western medicine with Eastern medicine. As a Western-trained doctor, she pivoted over to herbals to help heal herself from Lyme disease and even gave us specific herbal protocols to address specific things related to Lyme disease. And Matt, what's beautiful about the transformation that Dr. Iannucci went through is that she recognized that she was failed by the Western educational system. And what she focused on for her PhD dissertation was training nurse practitioners to have the educational foundation they will need to properly diagnose and treat Lyme disease. So Matt, this is a really exciting podcast episode. This is a really beautiful transformation. Without further ado, I'm excited to introduce Dr. Janice Iannucci to the Tick Bootcamp community. Hey, Dr. Iannucci, the Long Island Lyme Warrior, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Really excited to have you too. We've been uh, stalking you as a fellow Long Islander for a long time. And uh, finally, uh, we've been able to get you on the podcast. So uh, Dr. Iannucci, tell us about, uh, first of all, when you became a doctor. Uh, actually, I just graduated uh, in May 2021. It was a long journey um, over the f- three years of studying for my doctorate, and I finally was able to graduate. So Congratulations. I'm excited. It's yeah. really cool that uh, somebody was in the midst of a battle with Lyme disease, was able to continue her education and ultimately achieve that wonderful goal of, uh, of becoming a doctor. So uh, congratulations. Thank you so much. So talk to us about what you have your PhD in. So actually, um, I did my research on Lyme disease, of course, um, because of everything that I went through. And I feel that there's not a lot of information out there that pertains to nurse practitioners and medical doctors getting that information about Lyme disease accurately and being able to have that and being able to see a patient and say, I need to do treat the patient. So for me, it was all about education. So um, what I did in my research was to uh, see if increasing education um, to nurse practitioners in particular, would it able, would it help them to be able to diagnose early a patient and be able to treat them early on? So But the main part of it was like giving the information, will they be able to retain that information and utilize it? So before we get there, because that's going to be an important part of our conversation about your transformation, I'd like to walk back. So where did you grow up? So I grew up on Long Island, uh, Lindenhurst, Lindenhurst, Long Island, New York. So you're a Long Island gal. And one of the things we always do on our podcast is when we have more than... uh, 
two Long Islanders uh, on our podcast. We give a trigger warning because we, we are going to butcher the English language as we always do. So hopefully you will not uh, disappoint our folks when they expect you to butcher the language of the way we are really <laughs> doing. Um, so um, Dr. Anucci, talk to us about uh, what it was like to grow up on Long Island uh, and uh, what your educational experience was like. So um, I love Long Island. Uh, I remember as a kid, you know, um, I mean, this is going to tell my age, but basically being outside on your bicycle, you know, no time to come home, going home when the lights go out on the, in the streets, um, and just basically enjoying the summers here, being outside, um, hanging with my friends uh, as a teenager or a young person. Um, so I really took advantage of all that. Um, so. Mm-hmm. Without without disclosing your age, um, you did grow up in the late seventies, early eighties, right? So, talk to us about what it was like to be on Long Island in the late seventies and the early eighties, and talk about what you knew about ticks and tick diseases growing up on Long Island at that time. I want to tell you, I knew absolutely nothing about Lyme disease and tick diseases growing up on the island. I don't even think my parents were so aware about, you know, whether or not you got bit by a tick or anything like that. So I know we always spent so much time outside and being that um, Long Island is one of the highest endemic places, you would think that people were educated about it, but absolutely not. Now, did you have any companion animals, dogs, cats, any, anything like that, where you would see them coming in with uh, ticks during your childhood? Absolutely. Dogs. Always had dogs coming in with ticks, um, not knowing so much what to do with that. Uh, you know, it was always like, oh, do we light it up with a match or do you like suffocate it with Vaseline? You know, like those are the old school kind of things that we grew up with. Yeah. So in my house, we actually had a vat of Vaseline with tweezers and we we would keep uh, napkins and um, and uh, and matches together on on this counter in my uh, parents mudroom because we had so many ticks coming in on our dogs and sometimes on us. So we had our own sort of ghetto tick kit that we had, uh, we had used and we would of course put the Vaseline on them and pull the tick off and, and then yeah. burn the tick. So did you have anything like that in, uh, in, in Lindenhurst where you had uh, tools to take care of the ticks on your dogs? Yeah, we had the, the tweezer and either the, the Vaseline or the match burn the tick, burn the hell out of the tick. So do you recall during your childhood being bitten by ticks? Did you ever have to pull a tick off of you or have a family member pull a tick off of you? I vaguely remember ever really having tick bites, um, which is really odd for where I am now. Uh, But as far as family members were more affected by ticks. So I always thought, yeah, it's never gonna happen to me. I'm never gonna get a tick bite. Um, I would say my sisters, I have two sisters and I have um, one brother. So I think they were more affected and the dog for sure more affected. So let's talk about the education you received. You uh, grew up in Lindenhurst. And for our listeners who are not familiar with Long Island, Lindenhurst is a pretty well-heeled community uh, and they have some really good schools. So talk to us about where you went to school and what you learned in your health classes or science classes about ticks and tick diseases. Uh, Lindenhurst Public Schools is where I grew up. 
we probably have one of the better uh, public schools. Uh, a lot of people just moved to Lindenhurst just because of this, um, the organizations that they have here, the school, you know, the middle school, the uh, elementary school was always very solid, good teachers, uh, good place you can grow up and trust. Uh, as far as, so that's pretty much the mainstream of where I, you know, grew up with my education is in the Lindenhurst public schools, um, elementary, middle school, and then high school. Uh, as far as learning anything about ticks, it was all very vague. Um, nothing about what to do with tick bites from, you know, my experience or, you know, anything about what to do with your animals with tick bites, your family with tick bites, nothing at all. I don't remember anything. So, so just for context, um, you're growing up at a time when the ticks that were ultimately dragged and examined for the discovery of the Lyme bacteria were being, were being located on Long Island. Our daily newspaper was covering that. Newsday, which was a major newspaper at the time, was covering these events, these scientific events. Some of the scientists were at Stony Brook University, which is a stone's throw from your house. Um, yet your educational experience did not include whether it be social studies or, or health or science, any information about this threat that you were facing? No information at all. I want to well, say talk to us <laughs> about what your vision was for your future when you were a young child in Lindenhurst, growing up and living in this enriching environment, uh, what were you dreaming about doing? Well, I always love helping people. So I knew by far that's what I would end up doing. Um, and it wasn't until probably in my teens that I realized that I really want to be a nurse. And so that was like at the forefront of my mind that I will so start doing that. What steps did you take um, after you graduated from high school to become a nurse? So I started, uh, actually started as an LPN. So that's the beginning of a nurse career. So it's a licensed practical nurse. Uh, I remember going to BOCES in Northport to see like, is this the way I want to go? Is this my future? Let me just try it out. And so um, once I started in that program, I knew like that is where my love and my passion and my desire was to be a nurse. So I completed that program and started as an LPN in uh, Good Samaritan Hospital, which is a big hospital on the island. And then I went back to school for my RN as I was um, working as an LPN. So let's talk about your training as an LPN first educationally, and then uh, the practical training you received when you worked at your first hospital. Uh, did you learn anything about ticks and tick diseases during either your early educational experience before you became an LPN or when you went to work at Good Samaritan Hospital, which is one of Long Island's best hospitals? Yeah, not at all. Not one piece of information about tick-borne illness. So after you were working at Good Sam Hospital, you went back to school to, um, to gain the educational training you needed to become an RN. <clears throat> Where'd you go to school? Uh, Farmingdale College. It's right on Long Island. Um, excellent co college, uh, university for nursing. So you go to Farmingdale, uh, right here on Long Island, uh, a tick endemic community. And when you were studying for your end, did you learn anything about ticks and tick diseases? Not one piece of information about tick-borne illness. So you now have your RN. Where do you go to work? 
So I started at Winthrop University Hospital. Uh, I started in the thoracic cardiovascular area, which is basically uh, another type of war zone. I was taking care of people who were um, had peripheral vascular disease. So literally, you know, these people had very bad poor circulation, very bad wounds, and they would come in for debridements and eventually amputations. So basically it was like, I had a patient come walk through the door. And then in the end, he was just a trunk in the bed after that. So it was a war zone. Um, that's where I started my RN. And then at that point wanted to move on with my career as well. So talk to us about how you moved on with your career after you worked at Winthrop. So as I was working at Winthrop, I went to school for my master's degree in nurse practitioner. So I always felt like I could do better than a doctor because I felt like, you know, these doctors, I love them. Some of them are really good, but it's like, I wanted to be able to control what I can diagnose and treat my patients. I wanted to be able to give them the best quality of care. So that is why I pushed on further to um, get my nurse practitioner. So I went to Adelphi University in Garden City. So now you go to another one of Long Island's best schools. You're at Adelphi University. And I'm wondering what you learned about ticks and tick diseases when you were studying to become a nurse practitioner. Nothing at all about tick-borne diseases. It's actually very scary, but no. So where did your career then take you after you uh, achieved the goal of, of uh, becoming a nurse practitioner? So um, at that point, I was working, uh, I finished up at Winthrop, uh, received my nurse practitioner, and then before I actually was able to get a job as a nurse practitioner, I was a nurse educator. So I got a job at Northwell Hospital as a nurse educator in Plainview Hospital for about five years. And as I was doing that and graduating uh, with my MP, then I started in a acute care setting for a nursing, a nursing home setting, uh, acute rehab. So now your career is again taking off. You're now working for one of the biggest hospital systems in the country, considered one of the best in the country, and you're now an educator. Are you educating anyone about ticks and tick diseases to determine whether or not there are any um, folks who are suffering from these issues in conjunction with what other, other things they're being treated for in this uh, hospital system? Not at all. My education dealt with just the basic, you know, cancer, diabetes, all those big diseases that, you know, are in your face, but nothing about tick-borne illness at all. And nothing about what role ticks and tick-borne illnesses could be playing in the presentation of someone with these other illnesses. Yes. So how long did you work at Northwell and when did you begin to study for your PhD? So uh, actually I've been at Northwell 15 years. So I began my PhD um, three years ago. So that was 2019, 2018. It's actually the time that I ended up getting diagnosed. So 2018. All right. So, so now let's walk back yeah. to when your symptoms began, meaning when did the symptoms that you now know to be Lyme disease begin to present in your life? Right. So 2013, I would say, or even, even before that, because uh, I always remember struggling um, to make it to class, whether, whether or not it was um, 
around the time I was doing my master's degree, my master's degree, which was a little earlier, and then um, just being present at my job. So 2013, I'm going to put a, a year on it, but I think I actually was suffering for a very long time before that. So what were the struggles that you're now describing as symptoms of your Lyme disease? Was it severe fatigue? Is that what initially presented or was it something else? Initially. So initially I would have these, and I always thought like it was a flu-like syndrome, right? So, um, and I always kind of hit it because I was like going to class or I was trying to work. And sometimes I just would not wake up. I was so chronically fatigued that I would miss class or I'd miss a day at work and I just couldn't get myself going. Um, and it's something that I felt really bad about because I was like, what's wrong with me? So I would have these periods of like maybe four weeks, five weeks where I would just could not get out of bed. Like I wasn't able to, I mean, I could eventually get out of bed, but I felt like I had the severe flu-like symptoms, exhaustion. Um, so Dr. I mean, you talked about what was presenting at that time. Do you recall having been bitten by a tick at any time uh, prior to when these symptoms began to present? So prior to these symptoms. So not early on, it was recently, uh, I want to say 2018 is when I noticed um, the classic bullseye. But that was at least five years after your initial symptoms. That was five years later, yes. So let's, again, let, before we get to the tick bite in 2018, let's focus okay. on how your symptoms are developing and how the symptoms are impacting your life. So you said at times you're unable to go to work, at yeah. times you're unable to go to class. What else is going on in your life? You indicated that you're a parent. So how is this impacting your ability to parent? And did you have any other social obligations that were being impacted by, uh, by your developing Lyme disease symptoms? Yeah, so um, it, it became more and more difficult to just carry on everyday life functions. Um, but get, just getting through the morning and getting myself up was a major, the major impact on my life had, you know, because I was a single parent at that point in 2000, my daughter was born in 1996. Um, but it was, I, I believe in 2005 or six or seven, where I probably started to present with the symptoms. And so I was just affected my whole entire life socially, you know, I would always make excuses and I, I came up with, you know, becoming good at making excuses for not showing up to, or canceling all the time. And people will always be like, why do you cancel so much? Or, you know, and it started just to weigh on my, my friendships. Um, one of my best friends was always like, you know, mad at me all the time because I would cancel, but it was like, I didn't really want to commit to telling her I felt really horrible and I couldn't get out of bed or, um, maybe I was having anxiety or depression from the neuro neurological results of Lyme disease. So talk to us about how your symptoms are impacting your daughter. Uh, meaning um, did your daughter complain to you about you being unavailable or not being the parent that she needed you to be at any times because you were sick? I think I kind of, you know, I always put on a brave face for her. So, and I think she was very young at that time too. So she never really got to see me. I would just cover it up. Yeah, I was good at just 
you know, my mother would take over if I was sleeping in, I could sleep 17 hours and not feel well rested. But then I know I had my mother because I lived, we live in a high ranch and I lived downstairs and my parents lived upstairs. And I knew that my mother would take over and she would care for my daughter. And then I would sleep in until I was able to function. Now, did it create any resentment from your mother or your father when you were doing your 17 hour sleep-ins and uh, they had to play substitute parent? So it didn't cause resentment. I think they kind of wondered like what's going on all these years, like, are, am I depressed or, you know, what really, what is going on? They always thought, yeah, you're under a lot of stress. You're a single parent, you're a nurse, right? You're going back to school. So they always thought like I had a lot on my plate. They never really questioned it. They just supported me. So now let's, let's talk about what you were thinking about diagnostically at that time. You're now working towards the highest level of academic achievement in your field, right? And as you're working through this process of achieving your academic successes, you're also feeling these symptoms and you're learning about how to diagnose illness. So what are you thinking about in 2005 all the way through 2018 about what your symptoms are? I mean, I think I was ingrained from like all the input from all the medical personnel around me and in the textbooks that maybe I was suffering from depression, right? Because I would have insomnia um, I would not sleep. I would sleep. I would have in periods of insomnia, not sleeping at night and then wake up, you know, and then finally crash at six in the morning and then sleep another 10 hours. So it was like a lot of it in my head was like, do I suffer from depression? And I think that's where uh, my medical doctor took me on that road where you're depressed. So let's talk about first work. You're working with medical professionals all day, every day. They're observing the challenges that you have. And of course, you're sharing with colleagues the challenges that you have. Did anyone ever suggest to you that perhaps you are suffering from Lyme disease? No one ever suggested it. They're like, you're working too hard. You're, you know, you have, you have so much on your plate. You're a single mom. You're going to school. You're, you know... And at the point when I got into my PhD, you know, my daughter was older, she's married. But even at that point, you know, um, the latest, when I was in the ER on the last bout of sickness that I had, one of the doctors is like, I don't believe any of the symptoms you have are caused by Lyme disease. I said, well, then what is it? You know, so yeah. Let's pause there for a second because we're going to get to your doctors yes, and that's going to take you to that, that portion of your journey. But I want to talk to you about now patients you've treated, right? You're working as a diagnostician every day, all day. That's what you're doing. Yeah. Did you come across any patients who you diagnosed or had been diagnosed by other medical professionals with Lyme disease? Uh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So, um, but it actually, I was working as a hospitalist, so I'm covering the floor. I have a patient who psychiatrically is off the wall. You know, she's running down the hallways, uh, things like that. Um, infectious disease is seeing her. Uh, they did an MRI and the MRI comes back saying it's typical might be Lyme disease. So 
I contacted, I'm just being, I'm really just the medical consultant, like, or the medicine covering that day, because it's like they bounced us around. So we never really owned our patients. Um, we saw these patients as they were on the floor. So yes, yeah, so this particular patient was showing signs. You know, the MRI said Lyme disease going to the, the brain. Uh, I contacted the psychiatrist and they just flat out was like, we're not doing anything about it. Or I contacted the attending medicine doctor on the case. And he's just like, there's nothing we can do about that. You know, we're just going to treat her as she's having hallucinations. And really, they didn't do anything for this patient. They, they um, discharged her from the hospital. So I really had no control. And that is why I pursued um, moving on with my career and getting my, my doctorate at that point. Were there any other patients that you treated during this window of your career that were diagnosed with Lyme disease other than this one person who was having the severe psychiatric um, symptoms? Not at all. Now, when you did treat the one patient who had Lyme disease, did you see any parallels between her symptoms and your, yours that may have led you to conclude that you were suffering from Lyme disease? Um, hers was a lot of psychiatric. So it wasn't her in particular that really made me really think about Lyme disease. And I actually think I was diagnosed by this time. Okay. Um, so let's, let's yeah. pause there. Um, yeah. because I want to talk to you about the tick bite you had in 2018. Yeah. So you're, you're dealing with all of these symptoms and, and, and you're having all kinds working, of, I was actually working uh, radiation medicine at the time that I, I was bridging over from, uh, radiation medicine to regular medicine. And that's when I found, you know, that's when I got diagnosed at that time. Okay. So let's talk about 2018 and the tick bite, right? Because you're not, you're not yet diagnosed. Uh, talk to us about the tick bite and did you find the tick or did you just see the, uh, the rash? So I was driving home one night from work. Uh, I was working at a radiation oncology, um, clinic. Northwell, again, always been in Northwell. And I felt something on the side of my leg. And I was like, for one moment, it was like, I felt like a bite. And then uh, I was scratching it, itching it on the way home. And I was like, that's really weird. I'm scratching, usually don't get itching. Um, but then when I got home the next day, I noticed that it was a red um, circle. And a couple of days later, it was bigger. Uh, and I was like, oh, it's a spider bite. It's very itchy, has to be a spider bite. And they were complaining about being in that office that they had a lot of spiders, which is uh, crazy. But um, yeah, so I didn't, I saw the red rash, it was itchy uh, and it was expanding and I didn't even think tick-borne. I was thinking spider bite. Okay. So did you do anything at all to treat that rash that you had felt? Not or, at all. I'm sorry, you felt and then saw. Yes. I did not treat at all. Um, I thought it was a spider bite. I remember putting my shorts on a week later. I'm like, oh, it's finally going away. I'm still suffering with the chronic fatigue and everything that was going on. So I didn't do anything about it. Well, did your symptoms change after you discovered that rash? Meaning that they become more severe after you suffered that tick bite in 2018? Yes. So actually 
this is the point where it gets uh, pretty severe. So um, I wanna say through the spring, as that was like March, April. Uh, and then in May and June, I started to have, this is where um, I started to have fast heart rate. Uh, one day I woke up and I was nauseous, vomiting. Uh, I actually canceled plans again with my friends. I was like, I don't know what's going on with me. I was literally on the bathroom floor vomiting um, and my pressure felt extremely high. And I just remember laying in bed. I was like, I should probably go to the hospital because I feel really awful. Yeah. And how long after that did you get diagnosed with Lyme disease? So that was like, I want to say June, June, July, August, September, October. It was like four months after. Okay. So in total, how many different doctors did you see between the time that you first began to exhibit Lyme disease symptoms and the time that you were ultimately diagnosed, not doctors in a professional capacity or as colleagues, but as people who you are going to see for diagnostic and treatment assistance? Right. So in and out of that period, even before that tick bite, I was going into the ER for I mean, I want to say 2016, I presented to the ER because again, I had flu-like symptoms. Um, I had like weakness in my legs, uh, night sweats. Uh, so I had several periods where I would go to the ER like that. Uh, and then also going to some of my regular docs. I want to say either it's like five to 10 doctors that I saw that before they actually even said, someone said, I have Lyme disease, but um, yeah, I took leave from work in 2016, like six weeks because I was too ill and I didn't know what was going on. And they thought I had multiple sclerosis. So everybody in the hospital was like, oh, you have MS, you know, the doctor's there. How old are you? I think I was in my forties. So there's like, it's prob probable that you have MS is what they were telling me. So they sent me for the MRIs. Uh, and the MRI was coming back negative. And so after that, you know, I followed up with the neurologists and they were like, oh, we don't, you know, we don't see anything. We don't, you know, maybe it was just viral. Everything was always like viral or in the hospital on that one time when I went in um, with flu-like symptoms and night sweats and fatigue, the doctor pulled my sister around the corner and said, are you sure, you know, that your sister's not depressed? And I was, you know, and then she came back and told me and I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Like if I was depressed, I would know, like, you know, it was always depression is what they were trying to tell me all the time. So talk to us more about the pressure that you felt. You said you felt this extreme pressure all the time. And many people in the Lyme community describe this head pressure that they've never felt up until Lyme disease. So can you explain to our listeners what that felt like for you? Right. Um, you talk about the symptom pressure, right? Correct. Yes. Pressure. So um, for me, it was more like, uh, it was so hard to describe. It was like, almost like it started with headaches, like migraines uh, in the, in the very, very beginning. Uh, and then it was more like my whole body feeling like it's was in a, um, a vice grip vice. Yeah. So it was like, I had this pressure throughout my entire body, but I also felt like my blood pressure was really, really elevated. 
Um, but it was just like extreme headaches and brain fog. And um, it was, I mean, nobody could really just understand what I was going through at that point. Did you ever experience any depersonalization or that feeling that sort of out of body experience? Yeah. So this, that's really uh, a great question because I remember feeling a depersonalization when I was even way before this, uh, probably when I was like 17 years old. And I just felt like I didn't know who I was or I knew who I was, but I was like, I felt like I was watching myself from outside of myself, like watching myself from somewhere else. Um, so that's why it makes me think that I've, I've had Lyme disease for way longer than when I was diagnosed, for sure. So living on Long Island, I'm sure you were bit countless times throughout your childhood, even leading up until the tick bite that you found that caused your severe illness. Absolutely. I mean, every year uh, I was at Montauk with my daughter. Uh, I remember, cause I'm very into yoga. So I'm looking back at pictures like from 2013, 2012, 11, where I'm actually doing headstands in Montauk in the grass. Um, so absolutely. I must've had many, many, many bites. So you also mentioned that your symptoms would come and go as well. So it sounds like you'd have a really bad bout of symptoms and then you feel a little bit better and then your symptoms would come back and maybe change a little bit. Why do you think that was? Uh, lifestyle, I believe. Uh, I also think, you know, maybe at some points my immune was stronger. I wasn't as under much stress. I believe like the more stress I was under and whatever I was doing to my body at that point had a link to, you know, what I was feeling like. So at what point did Lyme actually come into the picture for you and your experience? Did you think of it? Did a doctor think of it? I never even actually thought of it. Actually, my sister was diagnosed. So around the year 2018 in October, she was diagnosed a year before. Uh, and she was suffering from, uh, she had that extreme head pressure, uh, panic attacks. Um, she felt like her whole body was vibrating and she ended up going to Dr. Raxlin being treated and getting well, completely well. And so when I started having like these severe, this severe bout of symptoms where I had the fast heart rate and my blood pressure felt really high and I was nauseous and vomiting that day. I was in my bed and my sister came. She's like, did you ever think maybe you have Lyme disease? And then that's when I made the connection. Um, and also um, Bartonella, because I started having these, the red, the striping on my stomach. And so I was telling my sister, I also have these like scratches all over me. And she's like, it sounds like Bartonella. She's like, you have to go see Dr. Raxlin. Um, but actually that night I ended up going to the ER and, uh, I had PVCs on my EKG and my blood pressure was high. And they basically just sent me home and said, go see a cardiologist. So that was my next step. Did you ask for a Lyme test now that your sister had brought Lyme to your attention when you went to the I hospital that night? I didn't even ask for a Lyme test after all that. I did not even ask. And being trained in the medical profession and having a background in working at a hospital, you never thought about Lyme and you never even heard about, it sounds like these Bartonella rashes from your medical experience. Not at all. So now that your sister brought this to your attention and as we call it, you've become Lyme woke. 
Did you go see Dr. Raxlin as well? I did. Um, I actually remember making the appointment. I took the train in. I walked from the train five minutes to his office. Uh, I could barely make it up the stairs. That's how exhausted and sick I was. But I just wanted to find answers. So walk us through what that visit was like with Dr. Raxlin compared to your other doctors that you'd gone to prior to your diagnosis. Oh my gosh, I felt so validated. I felt like this doctor really understands what I'm going through. Like I told him all my symptoms. He's like, you know, even like the memory loss, uh, even when I write things down, I would flip, I would flip words over or uh, put one letter before the other letter. He's like, you know, that all has to do with Lyme disease. Uh, and so I felt really validated. I felt like he cared and that he was going to get me well. So we always get people reaching out to us asking for local Lyme doctors in their community. So can you share with us where Dr. Raxlin is located? He, he now is located in New Jersey. Um, I believe it's Guttenberg um, Boulevard in New Jersey. Um, and was this a clinical diagnosis that you got for Lyme disease or did you run any kind of blood panels to, to identify what bacteria and maybe co-infections you had? Yeah, so he ran every single blood test you can imagine. He sent everything to Igenix, uh, also uh, a lab in Germany. And so I came back with um, quite a few co-infections as well. Babesia, Bartonella, auriculosis. Uh, I had um, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. One, two, three, what else? Anaplasma. So pretty much you probably better have telling us the ones you didn't have than the ones you actually uh, have, it sounds like. Yeah, I had a lot. I had a lot going on. But for me, it was like, oh my gosh, thank you for, you know, coming up and helping me come up with this clinical diagnosis because you almost feel like, you, like you're going crazy. Like everybody wants to put the label that you're depressed and it's like, well, maybe I am suffering from depression, but maybe it's not from just depression, but what's the root cause, you know? So it was a relief for me, but I knew it was the start of my journey for, to get well. So just to put this into perspective for our listeners, you're about 20 minutes away from where Rich and I are here on Long Island, New York. And mm -hmm. you went about five years undiagnosed in the medical profession, and you had anaplasma, Babesia, Ehrlichia, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, Bartonella, and Lyme disease. And yet doctors know nothing about tick-borne illnesses here. Nothing. And they're still, I mean, they're training these. The last doctor I saw in the ER uh, was like, I don't believe any of your Lyme symptoms, any of the symptoms are Lyme or co-infections. And she's a new doctor coming out. So you see that there's, there's a mishap there. There's, yeah, it's wrong. Well, thank God for people like you who are coming out and, advocating and raising awareness here locally for Lyme disease, because we clearly desperately need that. So yes. share with us what Dr. Raxlin did. Once you had all of these diagnoses, Lyme and co-infections, what was the, the treatment protocol that he prescribed for you? Okay, so um, I started penicillin. It's seven o'clock. was um, injections that I was going to do for um, actually a couple of months. So I would get an injection every day uh, with the penicillin, I think it was um, 1.2 million, um, was it micrograms, whatever, but that was uh, the beginning of my treatment. So it was the penicillin. And then if that didn't work, which it didn't, 
then the next can I, can I stop you there? I'm sorry, I have a quick question on that. So sure. talk to us about why the first treatment plan was an injection of penicillin rather than IV treatment or oral antibiotics. I think a lot of it was um, money, me not being able to afford that. Uh, I think I actually took a leave of absence from work. Uh, I was bedridden at this point. So just me getting to the doctor. So affordability. So it was like, he had three tiers of, you can actually do PO medicine by mouth, the injections or IV. And I was like, you know what? I didn't really know the ramifications or how severe. And I was like, you know, the penicillin should work, right? That's what I was thinking in my head. But Dr. Iannucci, we've learned from some past podcast guests that these injections actually are more beneficial than possibly oral antibiotics because they bypass the gut and it avoids all the damage that people get to their gut health, which can be very problematic for Lyme. So looking back, do you think that maybe that was a factor with Dr. Raxlin or, or that maybe that was a good first step for you? Yeah, I believe that was absolutely a factor and a, a good first step. Yeah, absolutely. So after, after you did this and, and didn't really have much success, what were the next steps that you did with Dr. Raxlin? So at this point, um, we put a Hickman catheter in my chest and we were going to do the Rosepin or Ceftriaxone one gram a day um, for the first month and the second month doing two grams a day as well. So talk to us about your response to the medication. Now you're getting the port put into your chest. You have all these antibiotics. Did you experience a Herxheimer reaction? Absolutely. Uh, I want to say the worst Herxheimer reaction I've ever had. Um, but I was able to offset that with just like eating right and herbals. But as far as the Herxheimer, I've never had joint pain that's kind of just brought me to my knees crying. Um, and it's just, it was horrific, but I knew we had to go through this in order to get to feeling better. And he would always say, it's not, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And so you have to be a turtle because it's not going to just get better overnight. So I read a lot about Herxheimer, how to deal with it, how to sweat it out, go to the sauna, things like that. Do you think that that preparation by Dr. Raxlin and you reading up on it, researching it and finding things to do to help you detox, as you just mentioned, like going to the sauna, allowed you to better tolerate the antibiotics and, and psychologically help you get through it? Absolutely. I couldn't have done it without having some form of, form of being able to have control because a lot of it is about losing your control and being on the medicine and being diagnosed with this disease that it's so, you know, people aren't really up on and the doctors don't believe in you. You feel like you've lost all control in your entire world. And so in order to gain that back, I was like, let me take control of my body and kind of find ways to make myself feel better by reading about what can make me feel better. So a lot of it was like yoga uh, I do Bikram yoga, which is like the, in the hot room. So uh, that allowed me to sweat out a lot of the toxins and drinking a lot of water um, and being up on my nutrition as well, which I'm working on. And it's still a work in progress for me. So we like to refer to this as the Lyme toolbox. As we go through our journey, we develop these tools that help us either get through a Herx or treat when we know that the Lyme may be flaring up. 
So yeah. in your your Herx toolbox that helped you overcome these Herxes, you mentioned that you had, you know, hydration, yoga, a sauna, and nutrition. Can you give us any more specifics to help our listeners? Was there, you know, a specific YouTube channel that you like best for yoga? Was there a specific type of, you know, sauna that you purchased for your house? Or was there a specific diet you were on that helped you get through these Herxes? I would say for me, um, I have to be in person. And I know we went through COVID and they had lockdown, but my particular ass yoga on Long Island. I mean, um, that was one of the places that I went to as um, almost like a, a recovery um, place for me to go and to find peace within myself, but also with a lot of people who were there. Um, there are some people there who suffered from Lyme disease as well. So I make connections, uh, just being out of the house. Um, as far as sauna, goes I mean I would go to fountain and do the infrared sauna um and I also did um I don't know if you know the floating which I did a lot in the beginning of my uh journey um uh, which is you're in a big pool of I think 800 pounds of salt and you just submerge yourself in it and you float for like 90 minutes and so that helped a lot as well so what's the idea behind the floating in, in salt water, essentially? How is that helping you with a Herx reaction? So it's detoxing as well. So drawing the negative uh, toxins out of your body, um, but also being able to um, be alone <clears throat> and being able to meditate in that room um, and also um, just detox. So a part of detoxing and meditation. So that was something that I really need to be able to um, get through the Herx. So one of the things we've learned from uh, Lyme doctors, such as Dr. Biarascano here from, from Long Island, where we're all from, is that it's important to measure the absorption rate of antibiotics to determine how much we need. So I may need more, I may need more antibiotics than you, Dr. Iannucci, because my body doesn't absorb it as well. Is that something that Dr. Raxlin considered or was, did he just prescribe such a high dose where he felt it would be effective without measuring your absorption rate? Um, I don't know how much, and I was coming into it, I wasn't as literate as I am now. Uh, I'm not so sure how much he really measured my absorption rate uh, at times. And I'll be honest, I felt like I was overly dosed with a very high dose of antibiotics where my body really couldn't handle it at a certain point. So talk to us more about that because we had a past podcast guest, Nick, who taught us that for him, at least there was such a thing as too much too soon and it caused him to have more symptoms and actually set him back even further in his journey. So do you think that's a real thing? I absolutely do think that's a real thing. Um, and uh, for me as being a doctor too, uh, you, I think you have to go slow, start slow. Um, instead of putting so much into your body at one time, you know, you can never take away really when you're giving a dose. So why not just start in increments and uh, like he said, a better absorption rate. So I absolutely believe that, yeah, you can definitely over overdo it and feel worse. Yeah, you want to herx and you want to be able to kill, you know, kill the bacteria, but you also want to do it in a way where your body can handle the die off. So, so Dr. Inuchi, when you got the IV rocephin through the port in your chest, were there any other antibiotics or any other IVs that you were getting put into you at the same time as the rocephin? 
Yeah, so I was doing a mix of vitamins, um, glutathione, which I was doing three times a week. And that was coming as a, a push that I would push through the port as well. Uh, and that really would help with your immune health, uh, you know, things like that. So interesting side note with COVID today and glutathione being a popular tool in the Lyme community, yeah. we've learned that there's an overlap there where it can actually help people either prophylactically or even when they get sick with COVID recover quicker. So what are your thoughts on using glutathione as a tool for not only for Lyme, but for COVID as well? Absolutely. I would say go for it if you can do it. Um, it does. I mean, it ends up being expensive, but not so expensive. I mean, if you're out of work and you're on disability, some of these things are hard to attain because you don't have money. Um, but there's something that I use the glutathione, um, the gel that you actually can put under your tongue and you can do that as a daily dose, which is cheaper than actually doing the IV, but it also helps with your immune and your, um, energy. That's what I found that helps me a lot. So I use that. Do you have any thoughts on oral glutathione versus the gel under your tongue versus the IV glutathione? Do you think that the oral will work just as well as an alternative that may be more affordable to people that are listening to this podcast? I mean, in, in the end, you're going to have a good result. It may not, I mean, obviously IV is going to be quicker absorbed. And if you can do it that way, yes, do it that way. But in the end, it's overall, it can have an impact on you. So if you can't afford the IV, I would definitely still do the oral because you're going to have some effect with it. So are there any other, any other, what I'll call kill protocols that you did with this IV? I know um, you talked about offline a little bit, maybe flagell that was used during your healing journey. Or did that come later on? That actually came later on. So uh, it was a ceftriaxone. Uh, and then, cause I actually did two runs of uh, IV last year and then this year. So uh, it was strictly ceftriaxone that we used. And then I ended up getting the port infection and it came to a halt. So is the ceftriaxone the same as rocephin? I think you mentioned rocephin. Is that the same, same. medication? Okay. Same Just brand. So talk to us about your, your port infection. So your, well, I guess before we even get there, yeah. did, you, did you experience any health gains from the IV antibiotics while you were on them before you got the infected port? Actually, actually yes. Like I had all my energy back. Um, I was feeling so much better. And then uh, I believe COVID came around as well. And of course I'm a nurse practitioner and we were all called to the front lines. And so- I'm a little taken back that I actually went with a port in my chest, uh, but I actually worked all through COVID with no problem at all. Um, I would do my push when I came home at night. In the morning, I would do my push of my septrioxone. And then when I came home at night, I would do my push. But I worked COVID for three or four months in the ICU and I was feeling great. So I think that that goes to show you... But I think that goes to show the effectiveness of the IV antibiotics, right? Of the, of the IV rocephin or the ceftriaxone, because you were so well that you were able to work during one of the most stressful times in our history, right? And you were still healthy and you were going home and doing your medication and you really didn't have many issues until you got the infection. So talk to us more about how your port got infected and then what happened then. Yeah. So I kept working and then one day I just, I felt off. I was like, I don't know what's going on with me. I just feel sick. Um, and I know I was doing the night shift that night. So uh, I actually 
for the, I would say a couple of weeks, I was having like this shaking inside. Like I felt like my whole body was shaking. Um, and so I didn't really say anything to anybody. Cause I was like, we're still working COVID we're short. Let me just go to work. I felt ill going to work that night. Cause I was working from 7 PM to 7 AM. Uh, when I got there, I got sign off from one of the other NPs and my body was shaking. Well, and literally we had like a rapid response and I had to like go, but I was like, I don't know what to do. I took some Tylenol. Uh, and the shaking went away. So I didn't even think, take my temperature or anything like that. Um, during rounds, uh, one of the nurses said to me, like, you look horrible. Let me take your blood pressure. I said, I don't really feel well. I feel like I'm going to pass out. She took my blood pressure was like 140 over 90. It wasn't like so high, but I just didn't feel well. Uh, and at that point, I still decided to stay at work. So that morning, uh, I ended up just, I found an IV bag of saline, which we're not supposed to do. And I like connected it to my uh, port and I like flushed my port out. And I thought I was dehydrated because I was shaking. Um, and one of the doctors came in and said, yeah, maybe you should go to the doctor. You know, you don't look too good. So I was like, yeah, when I finish my rotation tonight, this morning, I'm going to go to the doctor. And so my shaking, I went home, went to sleep. I was like, all right, I'll do it when I wake up. And when I got up, I was so sick. I was like shaking. Uh, I could not control it. So I went to the ER and they took like uh, my white blood count. And they were like that, this has to come out. The port has to come out because you probably have a major infection right now. So they did blood uh, cultures that came back with a positive uh, blood culture. So I had um, bacteria in my blood and they were like, you know, you're pretty close to getting septic because my um, ESR was very elevated and my CRP was elevated and it was all signs of, you know, going into having sepsis. So, so immediately... Yeah. Oh, sorry. So two, two follow-up questions on that, Dr. Ayanuchi. So the first one is, looking back from where you are today, mm -hmm. do you regret the IV antibiotics because of the infection? Or do you think that they were an important integral part of your healing journey? Without them, you wouldn't be where you are today. Without them, I wouldn't be where I am today. I just didn't treat my body the way I should have during it. Yeah. I should have taken a leave. Uh, but being a healthcare professional, I'm feeling obligated at this time where, you know, COVID, we never had, this was never seen by man in this century, right? So for me, I felt like I'm a healthcare worker, you know, if there's a fire, a fireman runs. For me, it was like, I'm going to be there to help be on the front lines. So if I had not done that, and I treated my port the way I should have, I probably wouldn't have gotten an infection. And I wouldn't set myself back because I actually set myself back after that. So, yeah. Do you think that the infection from the port actually caused you to have a Lyme relapse or a worsening of your Lyme symptoms and having the Lyme bacteria sort of come out and take over again? Actually, yeah, I was horrible when I came out. I felt like day one again. Um, I was just I took off that whole entire summer, which was last summer. And I was just so sick. I was, my body, my neurological symptoms were off the wall. I was twitching and it was just, yeah, it was a nightmare. 
So now that once you got out of the hospital, did you go back to Dr. Raxlin's and say, hey, what are our next steps? I had the port out, it was infected, and I'm back to square one. What should I do? Or did you pivot over to another doctor? So um, I ended up going back to him. Uh, and over the summer, I believe we didn't, he's like, let's just get you well. Um, I actually didn't go back on any antibiotics at this point. We were going to take a break. Um, so I literally didn't really treat with anything at this point. I was like, by my, he wanted to treat a little bit more, but I was like, at this point, I just want to let my body dissolve of what, whatever's in it at this point, And then just turn over to more like the herbal or the natural side of treatment. And this was last summer, correct? This is last summer. So talk to us about the herbal investigations you did because Dr. Raxon wanted to treat you a little more, you said, and you kind of wanted to take it easy and let your body just recover and heal, but then you found herbs. So talk to us about that and, and what herbs you took throughout last summer. Yeah, so I ended up also getting C. diff at that point too. So coming out of the hospital, I had the septus and I also had C. diff. So if I don't know if you know what C. diff is, but that's just like you know, usually get it if you take too many IV antibiotics that you get uh, C. diff, and then you have to treat it with another antibiotic in order to heal it. So uh, coming out of that, I was on, he put me on PO or pill form of Vanco to get rid of the C. diff. So, and what, what's Vanco? Is that a strong antibiotic, oral antibiotic? Big guns. It treats uh, methicillin-resistant staph of Arius and MRSA and VRE, these big super infections in the hospital is what Banco treats. So he had me on that, or actually coming out of the hospital, I had to see an infections, infectious disease doctor and they put me on the Vanco. Um, and she did not believe in any of my Lyme symptoms at all. But although she didn't believe in your Lyme symptoms, the Vanco may have been treating your Lyme because it's such a broad spectrum, hardcore antibiotic possibly. Right, possibly. And that's probably why for some so long, I was feeling pretty good in the summer because I was on the Vanco and doing some herbs and I was feeling, getting better, coming out, feeling bad, but slowly recovering. So yeah. Dr. Arnett, you talk to us more about these herbs. What herbs did you research and which ones did you end up ultimately taking last summer? Okay. So last summer, um, I did a lot of research and uh, I looked into Japanese knotweed, which was a huge one that I still advocate for today for treating uh, Bartonella um, and Lyme disease as well. So I took that. Um, I also took uh, Houdinia, uh, Cat's Claw, um, which was really, really good with Lyme disease as well. Um, what else did I take? Let me look at my list really quickly. Because most of the herbs you mentioned already are in the Restore Kit by Dr. Rawls, which Rich and I both take and are huge fans of. So already seeing a, a correlation between the Restore Kit and what you basically found on your own. Yes. Um, and actually for the stomach, I took oregano oil, which is really good as well. So what, that, what does that do for your stomach, that Dianucci, the oregano oil? Is it, is it good for GI issues? Is it good for stomach pain? You know, how did how that help you? Yeah. So the oregano oil was very good in just balancing out my system and my stomach. Uh, anybody who has like SIBO or anything like that, um, that's what the oregano oil, I mean, it did for me anyway. 
Um, let me just grab this one. Hold on one second. Yeah, so Sitacuda, that was the other one. Did you ever hear of that one, Sitacuda? No, what, what, what is that for? Is that for treating the Lyme or is that for um, more of a gut microbiome immune herb? Actually Bartonella. So it's Bartonella uh, treatment and Lyme disease as well. Um, as far as the oil and oregano, I mean, that for me boosted my immune, uh, took care of any stomach issues I had. Um, and it was also acted as an antioxidant. So that was um, definitely all around uh, oregano oil was a good, a good one for me. So you were really hitting it from both sides. You were hitting it with the, yeah. the Vanco from the antibiotic side, traditional Western medicine. And then you were also using herbs to kill the Lyme and variety of co-infections you had. And you're using herbs to rebuild your gut health, your immune system, and help your body recover from all of the, the trauma that you ha it had from that, that infection from the port. But I, I have to ask, why would a Western medically trained professional turn to herbs after having an infected port in her chest? Why would it turn to herbs? Correct. Yes. Um, you know, a part of me, I was just tired of doing the antibiotics. And for me, it's always about extreme. So if I'm going to get anything about anything out of the antibiotics, for me, it's got to be IV. And so uh, at this point, I knew I couldn't do IV because of my the intravenous and the infection. So a part of me was like, let me just see if herbs can have any degree of helping me. And some, from all my research, you know, I read that, uh, especially on Dr. Ross's website, that herbs are just as good as IV antibiotics. And so for me, I wanted to experience that. I also wanted to experience not dumping all this, I know it's not garbage, but dumping all this chemicals into my body. Um, I just wanted a break. And also the herbs don't have a lot of the severe negative side effects that strong antibiotics do or the risk, right? I mean, you had an infected port because of IV antibiotics. Antibiotics in general destroy your gut health, which becomes problematic. We've also learned that antibiotics actually allow certain, certain bacteria to travel to your, your brain when you're on oral antibiotics. There's a lot of things that I think herbs allow you to bypass and get the same effect but not have all those negative um, things happening in parallel. Yeah, I even got sick of really taking the Vanco for my C. diff. So I ended up healing myself on herbs with the C. diff. I took myrrh. Uh, I also took the black seed oil. And I think those are the two herbs that healed my gut uh, and also healed um, getting rid of the bacteria from the C. diff without being on the Venko. So this is kind of a, a loaded question, but why don't you think you learn this stuff in school when you were going to learn about, you know, helping other people in the medical community having a natural alternative, which is far better for the patient than a drug that has all these side effects. Why do I think that we've never learned it? I think, yeah. Yes, well, yeah. why do you think that your, your, your education really focuses so much on these drugs that have all these side effects when there are natural alternatives that are far better to money. treat a lot of these things? I wanna tell you right now, it's all about the medical community making money, the farm, you know, farm, pharma pharmaceuticals making their money. Uh, unfortunately, that's what the bottom line is. It's corrupt. So as an educated now 
I'll call you an herbalist. How do you, how would you respond to somebody like this? I had a friend a year ago whose husband was near death with tick-borne illness here on Long Island. And they were seeing a infectious disease doctor at Stony Brook University, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And he wasn't getting better. And I was strongly urging her to look at using antibiotics with natural herbal alternatives. I wasn't trying to turn her away from antibiotics, but encouraging her to use herbs. But she was so against using it for her husband because her, her infectious disease doctors weren't supporting it or recommending it to help his health. And she was so dependent on her doctor. So how would you respond to somebody like that to urge them and encourage them to get the proper help they could get out of using an herbal supplement to possibly antibiotics in, in addition to them? I mean, it's really hard to open up people's minds, uh, but it's crazy how the Infectious Disease Society of, of America, like all the infectious disease doctors really don't believe in herbs or they don't even really, really believe in Lyme. So I would take somebody down that route or that road. Uh, and I mean, that's really hard to do. I mean, maybe speaking with somebody who is an herbalist or like myself, uh, explain that, um, it's, it's so deeply rooted where the medical community is so against Lyme disease. Like even the infectious disease society, um, had all these wrong recommendations and protocols up and they would just, just, um, I don't know if they were sued, but they were told to take down these recommendations because they're completely wrong. And they're completely wrong because it's all about just that society driving everybody away from the natural route in order for the for them to make money on the, the medications. So it's kind of like, it's very involved. It's very complex. Um, I'm sure you know about the Lyme wars between... Yes the medical community, medical community and the infectious disease and, you know, the Lyme community doctors, you know? So I would just take that person down to the basics, like, you know, what herbs can actually do for you and what they can do for your, you know, your husband, you were saying who was sick and, um, and it's all about education. So educating her on the herbals and what, you know, they can possibly do and that some of them actually do work better than the IV antibiotics, but it's all about choice. Uh, and very, a lot of people have very strong opinions about taking IV antibiotics as opposed to herbal medicines. You know, some people are so brainwashed and they believe that their doctors are a God, right? So they're not going to see any different. So it's really, I mean, it's really difficult to make someone change their opinion, but I think by educating, and that's the whole point, like bringing education into the medical schools, into the NP schools and nursing schools early on about Lyme disease. That's the only way that we're going to help people to change this mental thought about how and what to treat Lyme disease with. Yeah, and I think you hit it spot on that finding somebody who is trained in Western medicine like yourself, who embraces herbal medicine as a potential solution or even a supplemental solution to Western medicine may help somebody like my friend from last year be more open to taking it because you are coming from the same training and education as her infectious disease doctor. And also to point them in the direction of studies being done at a universities like Johns Hopkins who are proving in these major universities that, that herbal herbs are more effective than 
antibiotics, as you noted, and then giving them the research and the actual studies behind that to prove to them that these herbs can be beneficial may be a really great tactic to help people embrace herbs more in their healing journey. It's all about the research. You can pull the research and you can show them, then hopefully they'll be able to, you know, make a good choice and, and trying it at least. But it's so, not that easy. It's, it's not an easy task for sure. I mean, I, last year I was pretty well educated on the topic and I failed to convince my friend to treat her husband. And thankfully he was able to get better and treated with a wide variety of of long-term IV antibiotics. But I think his journey could have been shortened and maybe um, he could be better off today than he was if, if he would have embraced herbal therapy, but let's go back to, to your experience. Now you're at the end of the summer, you're, you're taking these herbs, you've healed your, your, a lot of your, your infections on your own using herbs. And then it sounds like you went back to Dr. Rex and you hinted at earlier to do more IVs um, more recently. Is that, is that accurate? Right. So uh, that September, I went back to work. I was like, okay, I'm, I kind of recovered as much as I can. Uh, I needed to go back to work because you have to make money, pay bills, right? So eventually uh, that's what I had to do. So I went back in September um, and this is where I think COVID started in like, January, February for us. Um, and at this point I was feeling pretty well. I haven't seen Dr. Raxlin in a while. Uh, I got my first vaccination shot in December for COVID. Um, right. So was it COVID that I'm trying to figure out the year we were talking about? No, because this is, yeah, the second, yes, this, this is the, the summer, COVID. summer after your, your infected port. So I think you're on and, track, right? And COVID. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So then, um, uh, what happened then? Then I just started feeling again, I was having working night shift, working long days, running myself down. Uh, and I just started feeling ill again. And I went back to him and I told him, I was like, I want to go back to IV antibiotics because that's when I felt my best. And so he's like, okay, let's put a port in and let's start, you know, with, um, actually we used, we used flagell this time and we, we use a different antibiotic. Um, and I didn't feel any better actually. Well, well, before we get there, I just want to back up a second because you did mention the one I, I was taking. If you can't remember, that'd be great. But I've, yeah. if you, you've triggered another question of mine. So sure, you talked about you got the COVID vaccine in December. And so, again, I think people in the Lyme community are going to be looking to you for guidance because the vaccine is such a controversial topic. And, and I understand that all of us have experienced so much medical trauma that many of us are not getting the vaccine. And there are strong positions on either side. But what is your perspective of the vaccine for the Lyme community, people who have chronic Lyme and co-infections? Do you think it is worth the risk for them to get it? And are there any tips you can provide them with to help them not have a setback in their healing journey from the vaccine? I mean, I think it is worth it. I mean, for me, my doctor was like, it's either death or, or vaccine. So uh, I was like vaccine all the way. Uh, it did kind of set me back a little bit after the second dose. So, you know, each and every person individually has to do their own research on the vaccine as well and make their own choice about whether or not they're going to take the vaccine. But for me, it was a either live or die kind of thing. And I believe today that 
it's important that you get vaccinated because a lot of the Delta variant that's coming back are the ones who aren't vaccinated. And so you just have to treat your body well after you get the vaccination. I mean, you might have mild symptoms. Some people like myself, I had a little bit of a bad immune response uh, with it, but I, I had no choice. I really had to get the vaccination. But, but talk to us about that, Dr. Iannucci. What was your bad immune response after the second shot? What kind of symptoms did you experience as a response to the vaccine? So I have peripheral neuropathy um, from the Lyme disease, and it gets really bad at sometimes. Uh, after the vaccination, the first shot was okay. The second shot, I had severe peripheral neuropathy. And again, I the chronic fatigue, which is another thing that I really struggle with. So I had increased fatigue again, uh, and this increased peripheral neuropathy that really sent me, I just remember, it just sent me crying all the time. I remember leaving work, uh, it was a couple of days, four or five days after the vaccination, and I was in so much pain, like I couldn't drive home, that's how bad the pain was. Um, and how long did that last for? I was staying at work for, I want to say two or three hours in my car, just crying of pain uh, until I, you know, I had to take an ibuprofen until it subsided and then I could drive home. So that lasted that day. Um, I got over that a couple, you know, it didn't last that long, but it was the fatigue that really was something that just was ongoing and I'm still suffering from it now. So the fatigue was the lingering symptom, not so much the neuropathy or the pain that was a, a day one uh, after the second shot, it sounds like response. Right. So yeah. Dr. Cameron from upstate New York, the, you know, another, another very popular Lyme doctor and Dr. Horowitz from, from New York, they did a, a webinar recently in a Facebook live and a zoom. And they talked about things Lyme patients can do after the vaccine shot to help them reduce the likelihood of having a, negative response and also a prolonged response to the vaccine. And one of the things they were jumping up and down about and really recommending was to take NAC, then glutathione, because NAC is the precursor to glutathione, then take some glutathione and then alpha lipoic acid, which then amplifies the, 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 the absorption of the glutathione by 30%. And that will help you curb the inflammation, which is the response to the vaccine. And right. they've been seeing some major positive results with their patients. Uh, using this approach. And I think they said to a half hour after the shot, you're going to do 2000 milligrams of glutathione and some, I think I forget the dosage of, of NAC and the alpha-lipoic acid. And then you're going to do another 2000 four hours later and another 2000 the next day. Do you think an approach like that using supplements and herbs could actually help people avoid maybe the response that you had and make them a little more open to getting the vaccine and not having to worry about a, a long-term setback? Yeah, I absolutely. I mean, Glutathione, I that has helped me so much in building my immune and building my energy. I still use it today. So I really believe in uh, preventative or you know treating what you think may anticipating what may happen and then treating your body accordingly. Um, you'll definitely have a better effect from it. So I'm all for the vaccine. You just have to make sure you're prepared for it. So now let's go back. So you went on the IV flagell. Now this is, I guess, the sounds like the uh, the spring almost of this year, right? Or I guess the winter spring of this year, and right. it didn't really do anything for you. So did you did you leave the port in? Did you try some other IVs? What did you do next after the flagell failed to help you bounce back from your declining health after going back to work again? 
Yeah. So I really was so sick of having the port in. I think I had the port put in in April uh, and I had the course of Flagyl and I think it was Minocycline. I think that was the one we were using and we were about a month into it and I just didn't feel any effect at all. I was like, I, and at that point I was like, I just wanted out. Like something just popped in my head. I just want to get this thing out of me. Um, it was uncomfortable. Uh, and I was, had so much fear that I was going to get another infection again. So at that point I was like, let's just get it out. And I just want to focus, uh, herbally focus, treating my Lyme, taking herbal medicine. That was, did, did you ever stop the herbs? Cause you mentioned you were on the herbs over the summer, you mm -hmm. went back to work and then around the winter time, right. Of, of this past winter, you started to have a decline in health when you went back to work, were you continuing the same herbs that helped you get that health gain over the summer? Or did you, did you stop taking some of them around the winter time when you started going back to work? I still continued to take the herbs. Like I would take Japanese knotweed, uh, houtenia, cat's claw, like always would kind of combine them into um, my daily routine. And that kind of always kept me steady, the oregano oil, everything like that. I, every time I came off of all that, I kind of felt sick again. So it was, um, it was allowing you to have that baseline where you can still work, but not really feel great, it sounds like. Right. And then also at this point in April, when he took the, um, the port out, I had the port taken out. I was struggling with uh, night sweats at this that, point. Babesia? Yeah, the drenching night sweats. And I was wondering, like, why haven't, why am I still feeling this way? Extreme exhaustion, uh, panic attacks at night. And so when I went back to Rax, when Dr. Rax, and he's like, we have never addressed your Babesia because in the beginning, uh, in 2018, I started Antiquin, uh, Mepron, which is yes. an anti-malarial medicine. And it made me really sick. So I came off of that, like right away. So I always treated for Lyme, but I never really, um, treated for this co-infection. So he's like, we have to treat you for the co-infection. And so I started the Mepron, uh, the Antiquin for two months at that point in May of this year. And, and did you, did you have that same response where you got really sick again? Because it was sort of like a herx from it, right? From, from the Babesia. I was so sick. Uh, but I, I said to myself, if I do, if I do not get through this medicine, I'm never going to get well from Babesia. So, I mean, the medical doctors say treatment for Babesia is like seven to 10 days, but we know the cycle of, you know, blood, uh, and your red blood cells, you need to do it longer than that, at least two months. So if I could get through a month and a half or close to two months, I was, I was just going to do it. So that's what I did. I buckled down and I dealt with the Herx and I was just motivated to get through this medication so that I can just stop waking up, feeling, changing my clothes from being drenched, having panic for no reason. Um, I just wanted that to go away. Was it just the Mepron that you were on or, or did you use another uh, drug as well? I know oftentimes they used, you know, two drugs to treat Babesia. Was, was there something else that was prescribed? So it was the mix. It was Antiquin and um, Propagel. Let me see what the other one was. Zithromax maybe? It was, that's it, exactly. Zithromax, the two of them. So I was taking 500 Zithromax twice a day and 750 milligrams of the uh, Antiquin. 
And now that was this past May. At what point, June, I'm sorry, at what point did the herxing stop? And did you start to realize that you're actually getting some health benefits and gains back after starting the Mepron and Azithromax? I think it was after I actually stopped the medicine. Uh, I think I made it a month and a half into it. And then I was like, I can't, I can't do it anymore. So that was about what, like maybe four weeks ago, right? Yeah. About four weeks ago. Um, Maybe. Yeah. About that. And I was just like, I just can't do it anymore. I I did enough. I, I, I hope to kill the Babesia or just to kind of, pull it back a little bit where I will actually feel better, you know, and so my night sweats went away uh, and the panic. Thank God. So I have to ask being such a intelligent person and I'm sorry to, to, I know I'm, I'm taking up so much of your time. You're giving us so much great information here. Oh, that's okay. I'm happy. Are there, are there any natural alternatives that could work that maybe you could have explored to help treat the Babesia from an herbal standpoint. Absolutely, Artemisian. Uh, have you heard of that one? Yeah. Yes. So there's a protocol that you can actually take. You do, um, you do three days on and you try to increase the dose to five cap, uh, capsules a day. It's hundred milligrams a capsule. Uh, and then you take uh, 11 days off and then you just continue that cycle. And so that's definitely an alternative if you don't want to go the route of doing an anti-malarial. So, but how effective is that, Dr. Iannucci? Because you taught us that some herbals that you had noted are actually more effective than IV antibiotics and oral antibiotics. Is the same true for, for herbals with, with Babesia? Meaning, are they just as effective or more effective than using something like Mepron and Zithromax to treat uh, as well? Yeah, so they can definitely be absolutely more effective. Uh, and also if you combine them, uh, there's like different tiers that you can do, tier one, two, and three, uh, where you can actually combine the artemisium with an antibiotic if you can, and then you'll have a higher percentage of being cured with that. Um, but each individual is different and their symptoms are different, but absolutely, you definitely can achieve just as much with any type of medicine. So talk to us about cryptoleptis, because this is a, an herb that's become very popular in the Lyme community to treat Lyme, uh, Babesia, uh, from, from a, also a wide variety of other co-infections. What are your thoughts on using that as sort of like a broad spectrum herb to treat not only Borrelia, but things like Babesia as well? Yeah. So I was also on that too. With the Artemisium, I was doing the cryptoleptis as well. So uh, I would say absolutely yes. Uh, I think that brought me more to my healing than what the actual ant- antiquin and the mepron and all that other, um, the medicine. So I actually believe more in herbs now that I've done my research. I've also, um, ILADS gives a program for physicians where you can do their, their fundamental course. And then um, after taking that course, then you can go on to you know, treat, diagnose and treat people with Lyme uh, just using herbal medicine. And so that's one of the things that I accomplished being so sick uh, was to also do that. So my goal was to help people um, to eventually learn that or you can do it just doing the herbs. So you are an ILAD certified herbalist. I don't know if you call it, well, you go through the course. In my words, I'm sorry. I'm putting words in your mouth. Yeah, so- <laughs> I guess you can say that. Yeah. So they offer this program where you can become, 
I don't know if it's certified, but you go through the program and then you, you work with the fundamental with a, one of the eyelids doctors, and then you are able to treat. So, yeah. So you, you, said, something else, you said something that was very powerful for me that sure. you, you believe that Mepron and Zithromax are very helpful. However, the combination of Artemisian and Cryptolepis were actually more effective for you using herbs than the Western medicine. Is that, is that correct? I just wanna make sure I heard you correctly on that. That's absolutely correct. So now that you, you did those herbs, so when were you using those herbs, Artemisian and the Cryptolepis? Were you using them in parallel to the Mepron and Zithromax or did they come at the after that? After, so this, okay. is, where, this is pretty much where I am now. Um, trying to find, um, trying to, yeah, find the herbs that are working for me to basically keep myself at a place where I'm well. Cause I, I've, I've learned that living with Lyme is living with it, right? So it's like not something that you're just gonna wake up one day and be like, I feel wonderful, I'm cured. Maybe some people can get that in the beginning if you get it very early. But someone who has chronic Lyme with all these co-infections, I basically just learned to live my life just fighting for my wellness, living for me to be well, which means taking the herbals, living a, a healthy life through nutrition and exercise and diet, right? And my herbal medicine, keeping me, my immune at a, a place where I'm able to function. So let's explore, explore that topic a little bit deeper, your immune system and the bacteria and how you can live with Lyme, as you noted. We, we got into a, a debate recently about mm -hmm. if we really can truly eradicate the Lyme bacteria and co-infections, right? And it's, not, it's never just Lyme contributing to chronic Lyme disease, in our opinion. Right. But do you think somebody who's chronically ill, not acute Lyme disease, chronic Lyme disease, do you think that it's possible or an, it, it, it's really likely that the bacteria can be fully eradicated from somebody who's suffering from chronic Lyme disease and tick-borne illness? I honestly don't believe you can fully eradicate the bacteria because I just know the way the body works and how bacteria multiplies and how Borrelia burgdorferi is. Uh, and so I think you could come to a place where if you make your immune system strong, you can feel well and bring the bacteria down to a level where you're able to function. I don't really believe in eradicating the bacteria. I believe living with it. We, and we completely agree with, with what you just described. And yeah. I think, you know, Dr. Rolls really said it very well that the immune system wins the day and it's never, it's never the kill protocol. It's, it's the immune system winning the day and, and having that whole body approach to a healthy, symptom-free, happy life. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. And I think that's what I learned in the beginning. I was like, let's kill them, you know, everything and see, you know, but you're killing your body. And that's what I learned. Like I was just killing myself in that whole type of thought process. So now I'm in, you know, complete overall holistic wellness, which means basically doing what you can to build your immune, but living with the bacteria, bacterias that I have in my body. Well, being yeah. here today, speaking with you now for almost for over several hours, because we talked a lot offline before we started this podcast interview, you clearly have come a long way from the point where you couldn't articulate anything you wanted to say, you were having trouble putting words together, and you've made a lot of progress in your journey. So before I hand this over to Rich, I just want to ask you, looking back at your journey, 
you've built this basic, you've done all this research, you've built this toolbox of herbs to help you now live this healthy, amazing life that you've developed because of your, your own research and your own, and your own really motivation to heal. What are the herbs in your toolbox that you take and that you would recommend to people listening to help them either A, get into a place where they can live a better life or B, stay in a place where they are, are in remission? Yes, that's a wonderful question. Um, so I would definitely, I'm just going to pull up my little list here too, so I can, so I'm not just talking off my head, but um, okay. And I guess while you're looking for that list, I just, I do want to ask another question because some people have asked us the question, some herbs could be toxic or could be harmful. A lot of the herbs that we use in the Lyme community are not. So how would you respond to somebody questioning, are these herbs going to be toxic? Will they be harmful to my health? And should I be concerned about the toxicity of these herbs? Yeah. So any, any drug can be toxic. Whether, whether it's a prescription drug or an herbal medicine. So you always have to have the right direction. So if you're working with a, a Lyme literate doctor or a functional medicine doctor, you know, they, you, should, you really have to find someone that you trust and that you know knows what they're doing with the medication and the herbals. So that, that's the whole key, finding the right, doing your own research but finding the right person to help you uh, in using these medications and these herbal medicines. Because and anything can, can become toxic. So I was recently looking into silver water. Uh, I was away in Denmark um, for a while. My friend over there was telling me, oh, you have to do the colloidal water or something. Co colloidal silver. Colloidal silver. So my, you know, with that, that could become very easily toxic as well. But um, I actually started taking that in Denmark um, every single day. And when I came back to New York, uh, I stopped taking it because I started taking it while my other herbs and I fell back into some of the other symptoms that actually disappeared when I was in Denmark. So my next step is to look for that um, silver water is what they call it. I think that would be one of the top on my list, uh, but you need to use caution when you use that as well. So I know this, you may not have an answer to this question because you've, you have a unique background and you've done the research on your own. Right. For listening who want to use an herbal, proto herbal protocol and they want to work with a doctor to help them develop a protocol that's going to work with them and their tick-borne illnesses, who would you recommend? Somebody like Dr. Rawls or, or you know, what, what herbalist would you recommend they, they partner with to take herbs in a safe way and not have to worry about being, you know, taking a protocol that could be toxic for them? I like Dr. Ross. I don't know if you know him. Um, Marty Ross. Yes. He, yeah. So he has uh, treatlime.net. He's got uh, a protocol for each and every co-infection. Uh, Lyme disease, all the co-infections, and he has them tier one to tier three, meaning, you know, if you can't afford or get prescription medicines and you could do it herbally, uh, he also gives you the differences on the antibiotics and the herbal medication. But he also 
um, has a support protocol. So it's not just about the herbal, it's about sleeping, uh, it's about boosting your immune system, uh, improving your detoxification, um, speeding your recovery, killing the infections, um, all that. So how to manage your Herxheimer die-off reactions. So he's got his whole website that kind of goes off on that, but he also holds um, a webinar every Thursday, which is free. And you can actually go on and ask him questions and get some of the answers that you're looking for. Where can people learn about that webinar and how to sign up? Is that on his website that you mentioned? Yeah, so uh, Treat Lyme by Marty Ross, MD. So uh, I believe you can find all the information on there. And I promise, Rich, this is really my last question now. So I just, if, <laughs> if you could come back to uh, Dr. Iannucci, the, you know, your, what you've kind of honed in on as being the most effective herbal protocol for a wide variety of tick-borne illnesses like, like you have and, and can really address all of the co-infections and help you heal. Yeah. So um, some of the ones that I used uh, for the Babesia was the Cryptoleptus and the Artemisian. So that's one for that. For the Bartonella, um, I was using the Houtnia and the Cetacuda. And so there's, there's a whole protocol actually, it's the Marty Ross protocol. So that kind of shows you if you go online, what your dosages would be, things like that. Um, then to kill Lyme, there's the um, Otoba bark extract and the cat's claw I was using as well. And for things as far as like sleep and supporting um, um, your immune and your adrenals would be like the L-theanine, which is for sleep. Um, what else? There's um, curcumin, which I use as well. The ashwanga, I don't know if you guys heard that, but that's more for your adrenals and your thyroid. Um, and then basically, detoxification. So like your, I really like the liposomal glutathione, which is, um, comes in a bottle and you could, you put it underneath your tongue. It works amazing. Uh, probiotic, a multivitamin. Uh, and that basically covers pretty much what I used that helped me to get well. And the Japanese knotweed. Yeah, that was a very important one. The, um, oregano oil as well. Dr. Anucci, let's talk about the beauty of this journey. Clearly, you've had a lot of pain and you've had a lot of suffering and your family and friends have suffered a lot as a result of you going on this journey. But there's been some beautiful elements of this journey as well. And I think one of the most beautiful elements of this journey is from uh, your childhood, you wanted to help people. And you believe that the best way for you to do that from your early childhood was through educating yourself first as a nurse, then as a nurse practitioner, ultimately as a doctor. So talk to us about how the path of your education and your healing transformed through your journey with Lyme disease. Specifically, you spent almost 50 years of your life learning how to heal people in a traditional Western environment and you pivoted over to an Eastern um, uh, philosophy. Talk to us about that and how only Lyme disease would have allowed you to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Only Lyme disease. Um, you know, starting out in my journey, journey wanting to help people, 
uh, and then getting sick and not even knowing at times how to help myself um, was a pretty pivotal moment because at this point you're the health caregiver and the provider and then you're sick and ill and you can't even go to work to help people like you want to. And so that's when the focus came back on myself because in order to really help heal and take care of other people, you need to be able to heal yourself. And so going through this journey, I had a lot of trust in medicine and coming from that environment of, you know, being with medical providers and medical doctors with their view on what medicine is and how helping people is so streamlined and so, um, I want to say brainwashed sometimes, uh, and it just relies on medicine and a prescription. Sometimes you go to the doctor and you want to heal your thyroid or you have some levels off and they're putting you on a medication right away. You know, it's something that after a while, I, I didn't like what I was seeing and then being so sick and going to all these doctors and then not, not realizing or validating me being ill, uh, several doctors saying, Oh, you look well, you know, you're so pretty. Uh, why don't you get married or, you know, do some, you know, so it really is very disheartening, you know, being from that environment and everything and wanting to find my wellness. So for me, that's kind of when I, the transformation happened is when I saw what was going on in the medical society and how people really need to be educated. And so that's what kind of led me into my doctorate degree and when I, where I did my research on helping to improve the ed education for nurse practitioners in order for them to utilize it for their patients so that they can be able to maybe treat a person or get to them before they had chronic Lyme become an issue, before it was debilitating. And so- well, Let's talk about that. Let, let's talk about your, your research and why you believe the first line of defense in the medical community should be nurse practitioners who have a more hands-on relationship with patients rather than doctors. Right, so I believe it should be both. But at that time, I, um, which is what, what I said with my research too, is like I wanted to open it up to all medical, all healthcare providers, doctors, um, PAs, nurses, everybody. So I believe I focus on nurse practitioners because it was very close to home, uh, close to my heart. And I wanted to start there. But as I was doing my research and actually finding out that, wow, nobody knows, they don't know anything about Lyme disease. So it kind of came to the point where I wanted to bring all that to all the community. But I started with nurse practitioners and I saw the deficit that they had. They didn't know what Lyme disease was. They didn't know the first thing about what to do when you got a tick bite or even to prevent because like preventative is the best option uh, in order not to go down that road. So I think that's kind of being half half dead a lot of times doing my doctorate. I mean, I just kind of fought through because I was like working COVID. I had a port in my chest. I was still working on my doctorate, but I still had that underlying motivation to continue to do what I want, to continue to follow along on my journey because I knew it would end up to where I am now 
which is eventually helping people who are suffering from Lyme, bringing them my experience and maybe, you know, they'll it's take something o'clock. out of it before they suffer like I did. So let's talk about some of the specific elements of your transformation. First, I'd like to talk to you about um, your transformation relating to spending almost 50 years of your life and getting to the highest place in your profession, at least educationally. Yes. And, and obviously really believing in that system, if you were going to invest that much time and energy and money into that part of your educational system. Uh, and mostly what you were taught and mostly what you use professionally were pharmaceuticals, right? Absolutely, yeah. And I heard you say on this podcast earlier that big pharma is corrupt. So how does it feel to go through that type of transformation where this healing spirit who's dedicated her entire career and almost 50 years of, uh, of her educational experience learning to use substances which you now deem to be corrupt yeah so i mean it's very eye-opening um and for me it was disheartening i mean i always knew you know uh, for me medicine was always trying to you know wanting to treat the patient holistically as a person as an individual but not just you know after doing all the research and after being to doctors myself, and it was just like, we could just write you off with a prescription. To me, that was disheartening and disappointing. So it's kind of like, what can I do differently? So, you know, in my practice, I see people as their individual. Uh, Each person is different, whether we use the combination of uh, medicines and herbals, you know, it's something that is a choice for many people because many people, there are certain things that, I mean, I'm not going to say you cannot not use prescriptions. There are certain things that you need in order to prolong your life with uh, prescription medicine, heart disease. You know, there are many things that have prolonged many people's life uh, from not getting heart attacks and things like that, or diabetes. So there, there's medicine that you need to utilize when you have certain diseases like that. So I'm not completely against pharma, but I'm, I'm disheartened with it. And that it's all about just writing a prescription and making money off of the medicine. For me, it's about, you know, the individual treating them individually, holistically and doing the best, you know, giving the best care that you can for the person in order for them to maintain their wellness but unfortunately we live in a world where the society is just out for money. And so the best thing you can do is just find a doctor, whether it be you know, a medical doctor or someone who's into the herbal medicine to treat you and take care of all your, your, ail- your ailments and things like that. Now let's talk about some of the other experiences that you had as a medical professional. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would expect that doctors would treat you collegially and with respect. But you found just the opposite, that in many cases they were being disrespectful. They were making observations about your appearance. They were writing you off as somebody who was mentally ill. Yes. Um, What did that cause you to conclude about the 
perhaps intellectual laziness of some of the healthcare professionals you were working with and why some of them are just falling back on um, you know, frameworks and giving people either mental health diagnosis or just writing them a prescription. You think yeah. it's, 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 some of it is, is overwhelmed? Is it some of it burnout? Is some of it just, uh, just laziness? What is the challenge that's causing these people not to treat us as partners, not to treat us respectfully, and in many cases, put us in a position where we're suffering medical trauma? Yeah, I think it's a combination. I mean, honestly, I worked in the hospital through COVID uh, as, you know, in a hospitalist kind of function where I'm covering medicine and I'm on the floors and I'm taking care of all these patients. And I think that you see a lot of burnout, tiredness with the doctors, but I really think it comes down to education. I believe the root of all this is not knowing about Lyme disease or, you know, society as a whole just keeps it very quiet. So it's kind of like, you know, you don't hear about it in medical school or nurse practitioner school. So then how do you expect all those coming out to be aware or to know what to do when they have a patient who had, who's suffering from it? So I believe a lot of it is education and a lot can be changed with education. But again, the medical society bringing that education in is going to be a very complicated task. So now let me ask you the final question we ask all of our guests on Tick Boot Camp, and that is, if God forbid your daughter came walking into your room after this podcast and she had a tick biting her on her arm, what would you recommend that she do so she wouldn't have to go on a terrible chronic Lyme disease journey? Yeah. So if the tick was still attached and there was, you know, you can see that there was feeding there from the tick itself, of course, you want to remove the tick, uh, take the tweezer, you know, take it at the bottom where the, the head meets the skin, pull it out. Uh, most likely what I do is I put it in a little container. I would probably have it tested to see if it had Lyme disease as well. But I also would treat her like um, the eyelids um, recommendations, which is four to six weeks of uh, doxycycline. So that's something uh, that you don't hear about, or it'll probably be really hard for a medical doctor to take that on, or you can find someone, but, um, yeah, I believe that would prevent any shorter course of antibiotic, like a one-time dose or single dose. The research says there's nothing, you know, there's no, um, what's it I'm looking for. There's, it doesn't actually show that that's really going to help, but if you extend it out four to six weeks, and then I would watch her. I would see, you know, if we had the classic sign, uh, if she was having any signs and symptoms, uh, then we might have to extend the, the antibiotic use. But that's what I would do. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with Dr. Janice Iannucci. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Janice Iannucci, please visit our Instagram page at Long Island Lime Warrior. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. 
And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews you share with us. Thank you, as always, for listening.